This is Restless. Welcome back to Restless. I am your host, Matt Klein, and I am toppling giants tonight with Pastor Michael Bowman, who's out reclaiming the bluff land for Jesus. Pastor Michael, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing very well. Um, I wish I was angrier because I feel like that would put me much in the mood for uh, everything that we're going to talk about, much more in the headspace of this latest episode of the rise and fall of Mars Hill. We are back. We are back to the rise and fall of Mars Hill. I will bring up again, though, we are getting ready for the one year restless anniversary. Please send us your questions, comments, send us an audio file wishing you a happy birthday. Thanks to the people who have started doing that. And so we look forward to in a week or so. Yeah, celebrating that. So there's a lot to look forward to. But we have a lot to do tonight on the rise and fall of Mars Hill. And so we are going to go deep into this fight club that apparently this church was. And we have two guests with us tonight, two listener guests. And I think it's great that we have the most guests we've ever had for tonight because we're going to talk about masculinity, what that means. And so it's great. We'll get to talk to different guys from different parts of the country tonight. So welcome, David. Welcome, Elijah. Uh, Guys, tell us a little bit about yourself. Cool. Uh, I'm Elijah Hoyer. Uh, I right now live in Charlotte, North Carolina, but I recently moved here from Wichita, Kansas. Um, I've been a listener of the show basically since, I don't know, probably about a year ago. So uh, it's cool to be honest. Um, Another random fact about me is I'm a Reformed Theological Seminary student going for my MDiv. So right with you, Matthew. Uh, Excited for, for this next journey of my life. Well, we love to have OG listeners with us, and we love we love RTS. So, uh, RTS, we we never mean any harm to you, David. How are you doing? I'm doing well, David or Dave. I'll answer to either, um, and pretty much anything else as long as it's not too uh, too insulting. Uh, I'm in the <laughs> Dallas area. I'm uh, I'm the one uh, lay person, I guess, in the uh, panel tonight. Um, I, I attend the PCA church here in Dallas, um, but theology for me is a hobby, not a, not a career or a profession. And I've, I've been listening, uh, basically since the beginning, um, kind of found out about it accidentally and have been enjoying the show ever since. We are glad you're here. We're really glad David's here. He's actually done some background research into what they're doing on the rise and fall of Mars Hill that we think will be really helpful for the listeners um, and yeah, I think we, we on Restless believe theology is a vocation for all Christians because we want to know God. So, but we are excited. We got to get to work, guys. Episode four, Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. I am Jack's Raging Vile Duct. Uh, Pastor Michael is Chuck Palahniuk, a nihilist, atheist author. I don't know. So as you might not know, if this is your first time listening, I am listening to the show live. I have not listened ahead. I don't know what's coming next. Pastor Michael is your wise sage who knows about the show. And let's hear from our two guests, guys. What do you think about the show as we, uh, as with, as it's been progressing? Yeah, it's, uh, it's been interesting. Um, so I, I know this is typically a question you ask about like what our exposure to Mark Driscoll has been. Uh, I, I wasn't really necessarily part of the young restless reform movement. Um, 
I didn't really start understanding anything reformed, uh, specifically soteriology, until after 2016. Um, so, but I was impacted by a lot of the bands that came out of Mars Hill. So, uh, as I kind of looked back and was growing in theology, then that's when I started listening to Driscoll sermons. So, uh, I didn't know all this information about him. I honestly didn't even know that the church blew up. I was just like, there was this guy and he's not there anymore. So, so this has been really good. Yeah, that's great, man. We, uh, we've, we've realized that there are, I don't know what the right word is, younger, restless, uh, reformed guys coming in and we've gotten to talk to some of them and yeah, it's been interesting with a different experience. Dave, what about you? What's your exposure to Mark Driscoll in the past? What do you what are you thinking about the show as a whole? So about the show, I mean, it has good production values. I think the the host, the, the producer is trying to do a good job. Um, like if I had if I had to say which show is is the one where Mike Cosper tries to paint Mark Driscoll in the most positive light, it would probably be this one. Hmm. Um, uh, although the title doesn't really suggest it. Um, uh, right. uh, others, he, he definitely paints in more negative light. Um, yeah, and, and I, you know, when I listened to this show, I had a real positive view of it. And then for whatever reason, started doing more research and my, my opinion of it, not, not of the show, but, but you know, of the content, it, it took a little more of a, a negative turn. Um, as far as my exposure to the YRR, I'm, I'm kind of an oddball in that. Um, I knew about Marcel. I knew about the YRR, but kind of at a, I would I would kind of bump into it randomly throughout the the early 2010s and the mid 20s mid 2010s. I would uh, for whatever reason you know I would I would be doing uh, studying theology and I would I would bump up against YouTube clips of him, but for whatever reason the the the, whole, the algorithms always gave me the ones where he was well behaved, thoughtful, <laughs> theological. Um, so, I mean, I'm probably one of the few people on planet earth that didn't know that he had the reputation that he had. Mm. Um, but he, he did come across as a regular guy, which, which I do, that is my introduction to, uh, reformed theology as being a going concern in, you know, in American Christianity, you know, just the fact that he existed, he looked like a guy, you know, that I would hang out with or would work with or could talk with. And, you know, here's a, here's a real living, breathing person who believes in, in reformed theology, or, you know, he at least did, did at the time, was kind of the, the, you know, the impetus to kind of put the bee in my bonnet to, to, to later learn about it. So that's my uh, interaction with, uh, with Driscoll. Dave, were, were you already in a PCA church when you started hearing his sermons? No, no, I was not. Uh, I was actually in a Methodist church at the time when I started hearing okay. his sermons. So cool. I know. I think that's really good. And so again, we're going to come at this from a wide variety of angles tonight, and I hope we can talk about even this, yeah, this episode. And so as we always do, the reminder is the reason we are doing these shows is because I believe you cannot consume this podcast that is about the church as pure entertainment, even though, yeah, it has incredibly high production value. And so before we jump in, I want to read out to you guys what I believe the the thesis statement of this episode is and you guys just let me know uh what you think of it what level of of quality it is and we can go from here so i think the point of this episode is the vision 
of masculinity at the root of Mark Driscoll's philosophy of ministry succeeded in giving young men a cause to rally to and presented Christianity as a counterculture to the unsatisfied and corrupt American culture. Pastor Michael, what do you think yeah, about I, my reading? I think that's fair. Um, I think that's a, a pretty good take. Um, it's, I don't know, this episode to me uh, was, I listened to it again uh, after having listened to it when it first came out. And it almost feels a little bit more, I don't know, disjointed maybe. Um, like, I feel like there's, you could, depending on where you drop in in the episode, you could probably take it a couple of different ways. Uh, but I do think that overall it does uh, paint this kind of picture of, of a masculine rally uh, that was centered around Driscoll and around the ministry of the church. So I, I think that that's probably a pretty fair reading. I, I will say before the other guys jump in, this was the hardest one to do this with. I think it was disjointed. And I don't know that I was, this is why I wanted to hear from you guys. I don't know that I was totally satisfied because I missed the, like the fact that they said the conflict, the nature of him causing conflict actually strengthened his authority in the church, right? That's left out in my explanation, but David, Elijah, what do you guys think? Am I missing something? Is there, you know, is there parts of this that are better than others? No, I think that's a fair summary of the of the episode. He was trying to present a counterculture. He, it, it was it was a cause. Um, I, I think I would also say that he was in a, in, a, in a kind of a parallel way joining in the culture war mm. um, on the con, on the conservative evangelical side. Um, that may account for some of the disjointedness. You know, culture war does tend to be all over the map. You know, I don't know. Sure. Elijah? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, I mean, I probably had a little bit more experience with the emergent church, which was, I think that was last episode. Right. Um, as, as that, I mean, the church I grew up in, uh, a large mega church, um, what, what you guys call uh, what the big evangelical or big, big Eva. We, yeah, we call uh, it big Eva here. Well, yeah, big Eva. <laughs> Um, so growing up in that, that started falling into a lot of the emergent church. Um, I would say that that was a lot of the draw to Driscoll. Um, and even someone like me, who even after uh, uh, the whole rise and fall of Mars Hill, that was part of my appeal to him. I'm like, ooh, this, this guy's a man's man. So, so yeah, I definitely think that that's what this episode tries to capture. Well, then let's start with a clip of Driscoll addressing right what he sees as the issue and what he's calling men to it's right towards the beginning of the episode you don't know what it means to be a man so you let marketing and advertising define masculinity and you think if you buy the right things then you're a man and it's all about consuming as if being a man was defined by how much meat you can shove through your colon and how many beers you can pound and how fast you can drive and how stinky you can fart and how far you can spit and how loud you can belch and whose name's on your underwear and how big the mud flaps are on your truck. So the episode where it gets its, in my opinion, somewhat poor title is the comparison of Mars Hill to a fight club. What this clip shows is Driscoll, this is his take on what's wrong with the status quo. So what do you guys think about his criticism of masculinity um, in America? 
Yeah, this is, uh, you know, a continuing issue. Um, when I hear him say this, I can uh, see how that plays out even still. And it's absolutely true. There is a, a, you know, a false kind of masculine persona, especially in a, in a, uh, I don't know, for maybe lack of a more descriptive term, a more feminized culture where, uh, you know, traditionally feminine virtues are held up as uh, the primary virtues or sometimes the only virtues. And uh, many, at least traditional uh, kind of, you know, masculine uh, virtues are kind of seen as not virtues at all, but actually vices. Um, speaking to the, you know, uh, there's still men, right? So even even when you have a, a more feminized culture, you can't get rid of men. Um, God, you know, made us male and female, and there's there's no getting rid of of that. And so um, there's still this desire uh, within men to be men, but without. Uh, fathers without guides, without, you know, a previous generation, maybe showing how to do that. Um, this had, you know, kind of been taken up by marketing. And I can, I can think of, of, you know, conversations I've had people that I know, uh, who have that kind of view of masculinity, right? Like that is what being a man means is what he describes in that clip. So, so I think it's actually a, a continued issue, but it, he's, I mean, he's at least right up to this point. Yeah, the, the, the thing that um, kind of made me, uh, you know, he's referencing, you know, Fight Club and uh, is it Tyler Durden? He's the one who's talking about how marketing is um, basically, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, brainwashing people or poisoning people or give, giving them something that they don't really need or want. Um, the, the ironic thing about that is Mark Driscoll is one of the best, if not the best marketers yeah, in no Christian doubt. evangelical culture. Absolutely. In the past 20, 25 years. So in, in one sense, you know, it takes a con man to, well, not, not that he's a con man, you know, it takes one to know one. Sure. But at the same, but at the same time, you have to stand back and say, well, Driscoll is using, you know, high-end marketing techniques to get out his vision to the, the males in his congregation. In what sense is he kind of guilty of a, of a similar, uh, problems similar sins similar uh you know set of bad ideas yeah this is something we've talked about in the past that like how well driscoll was cued into the culture into you know kind of the sociology of things so much so that he like he did know exactly like that longing that so many uh young men had he knew he knew how to tap into it and then that does leave open the question, though, is what, you know, what is it that he had to fill it with? Uh, and I'm sure we'll get into some of that. And if you look at what Driscoll's doing, uh, our Restless podcast follows him on Instagram. If you look at what he's doing now, it's all an assault on critical theory and all of these things coming in, which is the new thing young men are just are sick of and want thought, right? And you, so you just see he still can read the room. He knows he gets it. He's, he's tuned in and he's there quicker than anyone else. So, you know, I think that that, as everyone said, is essential to how, where he got to start. And so the next thing we're going to listen to is a clip of some of the guys in his church describing what was considered one of the core ministries that was super attractional to people. They were the redemption groups, which if you followed Mars Hill, um, you probably are familiar with them, but we'll play the clip and you can listen to what this ministry was like up close particularly in the ministry of redemption groups 
These were intensive small groups where you were meant to deal with ingrained issues of sin or pain from your past. And they were often places where marital conflicts, sexual addictions, or authority issues in the home would be drawn out and confronted by the leaders. I worked uh, as a season as one of the, the leaders in that ministry. But from campus to campus, you would see it play out wildly differently. Some people seem to have really just, you know, wisdom and skills and how to do it. Other people, I mean, they there was this language like, well, it's time to go to time to go to re redemption group again and time to go get kicked in the balls again. Like and that was just the language that people would use. Like it was this weekly bludgeoning that we're gonna go, you know, get bludgeoned for Jesus. Like um, yeah, they became a caricature. So instead of a, a loving word of confrontation, it was a baseball bat to the knee. The redemption groups, I think this was a key feature. And this is a thing that people who want, I think people who watched Driscoll from a distance got from him in the very, we'll say very personal kind of preaching this, you know, David, you already said this kind of very man on the street, right? Person I can know preaching and these redemption groups, I think I, I, I mean, you can tell me if I'm wrong, Pastor Michael. I think we are one of the most under-pastored generations in, in a long time in, in Christendom, in, in Protestant history, right? If you read The True Care of Souls by Martin Butzer and read about what he expected shepherds to be doing, looking into their sheep's lives and guiding them and directing them, and, and even, even, even Protestants, even hearing confessions at times, you don't, it's no surprise when this kind of community, this kind of accountability is offered, people jump on it. Yeah, I think so. I'm actually, I'm working through uh, Booser right now, um, that particular book. And um, no, it is true. Historically, I, I think that probably uh, we are a culture, um, probably due to our uh, felt guilt and, you know, our uh, inability to know what to do with it. Uh, we are like we cover up, right? We're, we're constantly trying to wash the outside of the dish. We're constantly trying to make things appear very good. And especially in a social media age, I mean, you know, a marketing age, I mean, we're able to kind of create certain personas of ourselves that we can uh, market to everybody else. And so, um, so I do, I mean, I do think that there, it makes sense to me that, and I, I don't think it, it sounds to me like, you know, these things often verge into a very like negative, uh, more abusive direction. But it makes sense to me that people would be longing for this in some capacity. Somebody, somebody that really knows them, right? Somebody that that uh, they can express their deepest and uh, darkest sins to, and get counsel and help uh, find you know maybe some manner of of repentance, but also know that this person is. Like they're, they're not leaving necessarily because of this, or, you know, our relationship isn't dead because of this. Um, it's not all over. I, I think most people are probably longing for something like that. And it makes sense that, that this would become such an important feature of the church. Elijah, you're training, you want to train for pastoral ministry. Do you see lessons or pitfalls from this style of ministry that was ingrained there? Yeah. Um, it, <laughs> My mind goes so many different areas. Um, I mean, being someone who grew up in purity culture, um, where it, it, like that, it was just ingrained in you, like don't have sex before marriage, don't have sex before marriage, don't look at porn, don't don't do this, this, and that. Um, so, and then also, uh, also being exposed to a lot of the emergent church as well. Um, 
hearing what what they were saying in that clip and, and i'll answer your question here in a little bit of what i can pull from this for pastoral ministry lord willing in the future uh, but there was a longing for a lot of people to have something that was intense um they didn't want the fluff of the emergent church they didn't want the fluff of big eva so to have someone uh, as they say to give you a kick um and the cojones or a gut punch or something like that um like they were looking for that um and i know i was looking for that i was looking for someone just to give me a harsh word um from scripture and, and just kind of like use that to just wrestle me down to the ground um looking back i don't <laughs> and, and just with some of the training that i've had going through bible college yes scripture can be harsh yes scripture um it, it's not it's not this quiet, just super soft rebuke. Sometimes it is a harsh rebuke, but that's always done in love. Um, and I think there's times to where we hear in this podcast where Driscoll or some of the others lead, some of the other leaders rebuke or uh, tr- uh, uh, just pa- pastor their congregation in love. But the language that's that was being said there of we're going there to get kicked in the cojones that doesn't sound like something that's done out of love. It sounds like something that's maybe a self-righteous guy standing over someone who's in their sin and just kind of giving them a, a punch to the, to the gut. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know if I would necessarily go about it in what they were talking about uh, in that fashion, but there's definitely uh, the accountability and the, the being with someone, uh, talking about sin and walking through that with them, uh, that that is very necessary in the church, and and there there needs to be a call for more vulnerability in the church. There's a lot of law there, right? Just law. Um, David, what do you think about the redemption groups? Yeah, uh, so I mean, this is one where kind of the extra research um, gave me some more insight into what's going on here. These smaller group settings is you know where a lot of the problems um, of abuse or manipulation would happen at the church. And I think the Cosper even kind of hints at it when he says, uh, or I don't know if it's Cosper, but you know, he's talking to somebody else that there's a, you know, there's a wide variety of what would happen at these groups. You know, sometimes it would seem to be very good. Sometimes it would seem to be, um, very negative. Um, but yeah, those are the, those are the kinds of situations where people would exercise spiritual authority. People would, um, attempt to manipulate, uh, attempt to extract confession, attempt to impose authority, um, uh, which obviously are, are not things you you want to do, and and you're doing it in a context where you're you're kind of you're at your most vulnerable. Um, you're you're going to be your resistance is going to be at its weakest. You're you're, you're not going to be the most you know rational. You know they're talking about things like talking about sexual addiction or you know authority issues in the home. Um, you know, when, when you're dealing with something that that sensitive, you know, are you really going to say, well, hold back, let me uh, let, let, let's 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 think about this rationally. You know, what does the Bible say about this or, you know, what is you know, what's the reasonable thing to do? And, uh, you know, unfortunately, it this does seem to be one of the sources of um, Marshall staff and volunteers taking advantage of this, you know, for whatever reason. Um, the other thing that I, I kind of find odd about this, like you said, there's a lot of law. I, I don't know how much something like this makes sense in, within Protestant theology. You know, it makes sense like Alcoholics Anonymous or a group therapy session in modern psychology, or if it's a priest penitent situation in, in Catholic theology. But I don't really know where 
this would get filed in in Protestant theology as a you know like a regular you have to do this because the expectation was that you would go to these things and you would participate. Right. I mean, you're describing an, an additional means of grace, right? Which is what the reformers were against, right? Luther, who was against penance, like against this required penitent to a priest, encouraged confession to your pastor because he believed they needed to give you counsel. But he was clear it was not a means of grace, right? He was clear there's freedom in the Christian conscience to confess to God. And obviously, you know, these, I mean, these groups, I don't, I mean, I don't know, David, you, you're obviously, you have this, a lot of additional context, but at the time, these were viewed as a roaring success. And this was viewed as a new model for, I don't, we might call it Christian self-help, right? This is the alternative to Alcoholics Anonymous, um, but right, it's, right, we can celebrate it because it was church-based. And I mean, yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it, it was a success. Like one of the, one of the points that uh, Jessica Johnson makes in the book is, well, you know, obviously she points out the abuse, but you have people volunteering to step up to these things, volunteering to lead them. This is something that people wanted to, wanted to do. And one of the things she points out is that, you know, that's how a lot of the work at, at uh, Mars Hill got done was in these smallish, intimate settings. Um, that's, that's just the way things work there. Which again, uh, you know, the, what was happening there is unique, but I'll, I'll be pastor Michael. Should I be the, uh, the, uh, crusty old school Presbyterian fuddy duddy tonight that this is, this is maybe the inherent risk of a, of a small group ministry, not saying you shouldn't have one, but <laughs> be who you bit. are, Matt, be who you are. <laughs> but this is just, this, this is Right. If this is non-ordained leadership in these things, this is the this is the the obvious direction, you know, of, of possibility of authority that people don't have. And so just something to be aware of. There is again, we could I mean, right there, there, there is a lot to be said about these small groups. But there's one thing I want us to point out as 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 I think David said, that Driscoll comes off very positively in this one. And I think there's one way it's actually really important because I think it's one of the areas where Michael and I, and we'll hear from David and Elijah if they agree, Driscoll gets right a lot of criticism for how he talked and how he how he comes across. Um now obviously we're we're doing this. We right we we were reacting to Driscoll clips that were out of bounds before before Christianity Today was, and we had the name first, right? We did but it before it was cool. We did it before it was cool and very Mark Cosper, to... if you would like to come on the show and That's repent right. of stealing our idea, we would be more than willing to hear your confession, and uh, we will not even coerce it out of you. You can do it freely. Dude, Pastor so, Michael, those invitations uh... are getting more aggressive. We got to <laughs> The the pastor at my church uh, may actually be at a conference with Mike right now. So oh, okay, I, uh, I'll just I'll just call my pastor up right now. Hey, just yeah, shoot him a text or something. So funny. <laughs> so we're um, but I actually think one thing that's pointed out in this podcast is that Driscoll came across very differently to the people when they were hearing him originally, and I actually think, again, I think we we load back with hindsight every possible problem that was real into kind of how he presented himself. So let's listen to some people talk about Driscoll and, and yeah, his affect as a, a young pastor. 
I think that Mark didn't care. This is Wendy Alsop again. I think in some sense, and probably for all of us, our greatest strength is our greatest weakness. And so Mark's strength was a boldness. And if he offended you with truth, he didn't care. He also didn't care if he offended you with, you know, sinning against you by making fun of you. But if you could listen through it and not be offended by his manner of teaching, he did have a gift for teaching the word. And I'll, I'll never forget the first Christmas we were there. <laughs> One of his Sunday sermons was, ho, 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 Merry Christmas. H-O, 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 Merry Christmas. Well, it was about the three whores in Jesus's lineage. And so he had this like very offensive way. I still think it's funny very offensive way that he's talking about this thing. But then at the same time, he really presented how the lineage of Jesus specifically includes these women that had stories that we would all be embarrassed of. They would be embarrassed of back in that day. They were not the beautiful stories. And um, it ended up being, you know, like he, he pokes you in the eye with the sermon title. But the actual content of the sermon was very life-giving. It wasn't misogynist. It was, um, which I do believe Mark definitely had a misogyny problem. But in this particular instance, I just remember the sermon title got my attention, but the content of it was actually eye-opening. Uh, Restless does not endorse that sermon title. But what do you, what do you guys think about this, this reading of Driscoll that I actually think is a lot more plausible than... Driscoll was a bad guy who attracted misogynists because he was, you know, just a, you know, just a brawler. Yeah, I mean, I've been kind of beating on the marketing angle. I think this is marketing done right. Um, you know, I think there's, you know, you, you, you hook people, but if they need to deliver, all is forgiven or all is well, or, you know, you, you paid it off. That's the kind of marketing that, um, you know, like you said, obviously, you know, maybe find a way to do it that's a little less, um, you know, like you said, you don't endorse the, the, the title. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, if you're going to, if you're going to pay it off and, and deliver something, deliver the goods, you know, that's, you know, no, nobody gets mad when they see a commercial and then they buy the product and they love it, you know, but everybody gets mad when they buy the product and it's a, it's a pile of junk and you have to return it or you lost your money. So, you know, I think he props to him on this one. Yeah. Pastor Michael, are we putting that on our church sign this Christmas? <laughs> that will not, that will not make it. Um, I do believe I'm on for, uh, for uh, preaching for Christmas and I can't, I, I do not plan to uh, preach at least with the same title. Um, so I do think that this shows I, I did not say there was a chance. Uh I do think that this does show the importance of the context. Um, and so one of the things that, you know, a podcast like this, and it, Mike Cosper does seem to be trying at times to show this. And it, for instance, this episode, I think he kind of does that. He shows a lot of, you know, maybe the good uh, fruit that came from some of these things that, you know, uh, yeah, it showed signs of, of problems, but uh, there was a lot of good that went into it too. Um, I, when we live in such a like disconnected, like, Hey, we listen to this guy's sermons online, but it's disconnected from the day-to-day, -day, you know, uh, ministry of the church. Um, it seems like at times anyway, that would give you a false perception. You know, I think there are many, um, things that I have, you know, said sometimes even from the pulpit or, you know, especially to people individually or in a small group setting, um, that, 
are like if they were just taken purely on their own, apart from the rest of the context of, you know, my devotion to the congregation, my constantly, you know, uh, you know, showing my, you know, love, support, encouragement and care for them. Um, it, like if it was totally disconnected from any of those things, any of the rest of the relationship, it would sound very harsh. But in the midst of that, it's received as, you know, loving, kind rebuke. And so um, I do think that this points out the importance of, of context itself when talking about some of these more, more uh, difficult, difficult sayings of Driscoll. But sometimes the context doesn't cut it either. So, <laughs> I mean, well, you know, we, we will see some of that. Yeah. And, and again, I, I feel for, I feel for Cosper because it's, this is inherently decontextualized. There's no way, there's just no way to do it. Um, and obviously like we're doing the same thing when we play clips and talk about it, we're, do, we, there's just, no we way. are decontextualizing Cosper who's decontextualizing Driscoll. <laughs> yep. it, and the snake eats its tail. Elijah, That's what do you right. think? Driscoll is just a mystery to me. Um, <laughs> because, uh, maybe this is a spoiler or maybe it's previous episodes. I can't remember. I I'm, I'm up to date on, on the most recent one. Uh, but like you hear of him taking people into his house and of him, um, caring for the person who is in a sexually abusive relationship. Um, and, and it's just like, you see his love for specifically hurt, like women who have been hurt. Yeah, but then he's just a huge jerk uh, to to everyone, men and women. Um, and then the other thing is, um, I mean, I've went back to listen to a couple of his sermons. Um, it's been a while since I've listened to a handful of his. He's not that much of a biblical preacher. Um, a lot of the times he'll say things where it's like, "Yes, I agree with that. Um, I don't agree with how you're saying it, but I agree with the." with uh, the intent of what you are saying. But a lot of the times, like his preaching just isn't, wasn't biblical. Um, so he's just a mystery of a guy to me. And I think this goes into the necessity of training for, uh, for the calling of, of yeah. being an elder pastor. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that mystery is part of why this podcast has so much interest, right? There's, it seems there's contradictions and, we certainly, you know, are, have pointed out, you know, in early episodes of this and before is that we often agree with if we were to say, I'm going to write the propositional content of what he just shared. Michael and I usually would would often agree. Now, again, we've we've only done a, a tiny selection, you know, even in this episode when they're talking about things he's posted on blog post, you know, we're certainly we're not going there at all. Not even close. Right. But. We often agree propositionally, but when you listen, like what passage he's drawing it from, it's like, you're not teaching at all what this passage says, right? So you might be saying some kind of general truth, but it, it has nothing to do with the specific teaching of the word of God, which is the pastor's job from the pulpit. That's where his authority comes from. So we are here at the, the main event, right? We've talked about the, the status quo Driscoll's addressing, you know, some of the ministry, some of the marketing that kind of brought people in, but, but the heart of this episode, and then at the end where they try and hit me in the feels that I had to listen to it again, to critically listen. I don't appreciate that. I want to, I want to listen cold all the way through <laughs> first time, but the heart of this episode is this talk he had with the men. 
and the reactions of the men and the women of the church. And so we're going to play a clip of Driscoll talking to the men, and then we're going to listen to, in the next clip, we're going to listen to one of the women of the church kind of giving her thoughts on it as well. Sick of it, and so I was curious, huh, I wonder what he's going to say. And so when we get there, it was all solemn and dark, and but it was basically then him like pretty much yelling at us. Here's how Driscoll describes it in the book. I preached for more than two hours about manhood and basically gave the dad talk to my men for looking at porno, sleeping with young women, not serving Christ, not working hard at their jobs, and so on. I demanded that the men who were with me on our mission to change the city stay and that the rest leave the church and stop getting in the way because you can't charge hell with your pants around your ankles, a bottle of lotion in one hand, and a Kleenex in the other. That was the first time I really sort of heard some of the uh, things that later became sort of staples. But even at that time, I remember thinking the, the motivation was for me to find a way to take care of my family, right? The motivation, I, I think I was, yeah, I was newly married. Joel Brown was there as well. And you walk in and they hand you these rocks and they're like, we're giving you your stones back. And then Mark yelled at us for an hour or two and we went home. <laughs> I do think that there were a lot of positive things that came out of that. I think for me as a young man, I probably could have gone a lot of different ways when it came to taking on responsibility, seeing women as not just like objects or seeing women as lesser than, but seeing women as those who we needed to uh, protect and to honor and respect and all these kinds of things. I think those were big values for me. It was intense because it was not what we were expecting, you know, from a church meeting, for men, you're usually expecting sort of like a conversation or like a, how can we help, you know, something more positive and affirming, I guess. And it wasn't, it was very, it was very intense. As Mark recounts though, and as a lot of others have affirmed to me, it was kind of a turning point in the life of the church, a big wake up call. If William Wallace had been an absurdist approach to calling men to action, this had been the pastor prophet approach. Well, Restless is excited for an extra special guest joining us to listen, give us thoughts about masculinity and femininity at Mars Hill. One of the Restless Wives, my Restless Wife, Amy. Amy, welcome. Hi. Hi. Well, we just heard Driscoll's uh, talk. What do you guys, what are the, what of our, Michael, what did you think about, think about this? I think Elijah is going to say, yeah, I, well, I shouldn't guess what he's going to say. It's like, I agree with a lot of what he's saying but it's a it's a moralistic pull yourself up by the bootstraps approach it's not a behold the glory of the, the holiness of god and let that be the transformative work in your life that as it convicts you it draw it, it draws you away from the sin but instead what he's saying is like pick yourself up by the bootstraps and i and and he's just he's just crude in how he's going about it um, I did not see a pastoral approach to the whatsoever or a loving approach to it. Um, I, I appreciate that he is calling the men in his church to a higher, holier calling, but it's not a holier calling. It's a moralistic calling, which um, I think there, is a, there needs to be a distinction between that. Amy, I think you should jump in on this. <laughs> when, when I put the clip on, you made just a horrible face. What was uh? What were you reacting to? 
crude is the absolute word i would agree with you know from a published book right that was a quote from a book he published oh my god <laughs> <laughs> well yeah david what did you think about this picture of masculinity this masculine calling that that was given that night yeah like like you, you put it before like you you agree with the propositions like if you break each each point down I, I have no beef with any of it, you know, uh, stopping, no fornication, no pornography, work harder, marry your girlfriend, you know, fulfill uh, you know, Genesis command to, to, to have children. Like there's nothing objectionable about any of that. And, you, you know, you, um, what, what he, like you, um, like Amy said, it, it's presented in a crude way and um, they don't bring it up here, but it's often presented in a, warlike or or martial way where mm-hmm. it's uh you know uh, we're going to war okay um ironically one of the other things that um the uh, the jessica johnson pointed out was his his clips were incredibly popular with deployed uh service people in iraq and, Af- and in afghanistan at this time and they had an act they had an active ministry reaching out to them and and again this is one where he he he's positive in that people said, you know, one of the biggest problems, you know, at least among Christians there is the easy and constant access to pornography. You're bored, you're down, you're away from your family, you're lonely, um, you know, and, and, and so the porn comes out. And, you know, it, it did make a positive impact in getting, you know, in, in reaching out to Christian men and getting them to pull back from that and to, and to stop doing that. So, you know, it, it, it does have a positive, a positive impact, um, you know, but it's, it's the mechanism, you know, the way he goes out, you know, and, um, you know, you know, Christianity has often used war- warlike imagery, but you can take it, you can take it too far. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he may be doing that with a lot of, of his, um, his content here. Yeah. So let me, uh, yeah, I, I think I, I basically agree with what everybody said. And I don't know if this is going to get me in trouble, but let me try to, in some part, defend Driscoll here. Um, So, yes, yes, this is crude. Is it over the top? Yes. Um, Is it moralistic? Yes. Is it like the goal even that was stated, right? We're going to change the city. Is that the right goal? No, probably not. You know, like there, it should be a different way of doing it. Um, however, I do think that, you know, number one, you know, let's, let's do the, you know, contextual thing again. Um, context is this is the men of the church, right? So, uh, when men get together, generally there's a way that we speak together that is maybe a little more sharp, you know, uh, maybe a little bit more, uh, you know, uh, you know, we kind of, uh, give each other grief a little bit more. Um, we're going to mock each other a little bit more. Uh, and we like, there are ways that we talk to each other when it's just men that is different when there are women with us. Mm. Um, and so, and then even, you know, and then next to that, I also want to say like, yes, there is crude language. Um, but I could quote things from the book of Ezekiel that would make these things pale in comparison. And so, you know, I, I don't know that this is fully defending it. Cause again, I, I think I agree with basically everything that was said so far. 
Uh, but I think on top of that, I do want to take maybe a more nuanced approach. I am taking the nuance card on this one. I'm holding up the nuance card, firm nuance on this one and say, you know, uh, one of the reasons that men probably responded to this is because they just had not gotten it anywhere else. And whether or not it was problematic, and it clearly was at times, um, the fact that you have a father-like figure who's willing to share really sharp words with you uh, is something that probably a lot of these men needed. And, you know, point of fact, you have this guy being interviewed saying, yeah, when I heard it, I was motivated to you know, care for my family more or, you know, what have you. So, so anyway, I don't know if that's a full defense, but I do want to uh, bring that nuance in. Well, it, it answers the question I was about to ask is, is that why, as Mike Cosper put it, it worked, right? That this was, that this was a turning point positively in the life and community of the church, right? The, the contextualization is an interesting point that you brought up um, because I know that how I may give a, um, a rebuke if I'm like preparing a sermon for a church um, and texting on a uh, texting, <laughs> preaching on a text that um, that maybe is going to confront some of the sin issues um, in the congregation that I'm attending. Uh, that rebuke is going to be bold but also laced in love um not that for my best friend uh that it wouldn't be laced in love um but <laughs> we jokingly throw insults at each other um so my rebuke for my best friend is going to look a little bit harsher um but that's because our guards are down um and it's still done out of love so the contextualization i i see what you're saying um but then it goes into the difference, uh, the further thought of, I don't know how much of that talk was published in his book, but I mean, it wasn't just for the men. He published yep. it in the book for the public eye. Yeah, there, there comes a point where all of a sudden the uh, like what, again, I think can be at least somewhat defended contextually becomes like, a, hey, here's this shock jock thing that I now use to get uh, broader attention for what I'm doing. And Pastor Michael says that as one of the main hosts of what might be the morning talk of reformed, confessionally reformed podcasting. Uh, but because we, we certainly hear about our tone at times, right? Um, not everyone loves the laughter, but do you guys have any, <laughs> any further thoughts on if there were parts of what he said that was he missing part of um, masculinity? Obviously, we've talked, maybe he he certainly played up parts. Are there, are there things he was, he had or was missing? I, I think there's one thing he's, he's missing. Um, like in some ways, Driscoll reminds me of Luther. Luther had a mouth. Luther could rebuke. Luther had a fiery temper. Um, but the thing Luther always did, he always joined law and gospel. Hmm. Um, if like, if, 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 it, if there was some indication in those sermons that he gave gospel as well as law, um, but there's never any indication of that. People never, if he did, nobody heard it because it's always, he rebuked me. He kicked me in the balls. He did this. He did that. It's never, he was harsh. And then we heard the gospel of Jesus and, you know, by his grace, I'm going to go out and I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, as a, as a, as a redeemed Christian, I'm going to go out and I'm going to attempt to live the law now. 
uh, you know, in love and, and to the best, you know, the best that I can. There's never any indication of that. Yeah, definitely. That's an important distinction. Definitely a big shout out to our Lutheran listeners, who is a small group, hopefully loyal, who knows. But when they when they ask the kids there to take notes on the sermon, they say, where did you hear the law? Where did you hear the gospel? Right. You fail. You Right. Reform preaching. There might be some more freedom. You fail Lutheran Lutheran and Luther like preaching if you don't have both very clearly there. So I'm really happy my wife is here for this next clip because being in college during the kind of height of Driscoll, height of the YRR, uh, maybe Michael knows uh, what all the what all the girls would say. They would say about Driscoll, I love how he talks about men, which is, I think, a little bit what we're going to get in the next clip. And so we'll hear my wife's thoughts about this and uh, we'll see what we think. So this is a woman in the church kind of reflecting on um, Driscoll's messaging about men and masculinity. People like Jen Smith. I kind of cheered him on like, yes, there are these men, men need to be held accountable for their actions and response, take, take the responsibility for, for their homes. It's what I um, kind of hoped for in my, in my husband who at the time was quite passive in, in the way that he responded. And, and I needed, I, I thought I needed a man to kind of put me in my place, but it was interesting because it took the pressure off of women. And in some ways, that was kind of the point. The emphasis on empowering men, on creating a masculine culture, it was meant to take the pressure off women. It was really hard on men, and they would be saddled, burdened with the responsibility of you are responsible for the spiritual health and tone of everybody in your home. In, in one way, it took the responsibility off of women which we should have had, but it also um, erased our own dignity and humanity. And I didn't see that at the time. I'll say this, a <laughs> lot of red flags in that short audio. First, as the direct comparison is to my husband at the time, big yeah. red flag, <laughs> big red flag. Second, we have the um, the ideas of, I think, right. Did she say I that? Would, I never picked up on that. The, yeah. The, yeah. You, uh, in, early in the clip, she says, that. my husband, who was passive at the time, she, right. This is a, there is a, I think in a lot of this kind of conversation, there becomes a weird comparison game yeah. to my second, the second red flag is when she says the husband was responsible and therefore no one else is responsible. I think that if we look at, any kind of headship, any kind of leadership, pastors, right? Pastors, if they don't preach the whole counsel of God, right? Their blood is, the blood of their people is on their head, but that doesn't excuse anyone's falling, right? So I think that there's this weird dichotomy that goes on. And then there's the third one. And maybe my wife can tell me what she thinks about this one, because maybe this is my slightly controversial take. I agree that in the YRR, when it was always about men take responsibility, lead your family. It's all, you have to do this. You have to do it. I do agree. It did not treat women at times as an equally like spiritually relevant actor in that marriage. I also think it would have been way less popular to preach towards women's sins in this, in a way that like, I don't think that would have went well. Like, I don't think that would have been marketable, right? Amy, what, maybe now that I've, I've said things, you, 
you will. Well, you mean like, because uh, I, I didn't listen to like everything that Mark Driscoll preached, you know, or whatever, because I didn't feel like I was really the target audience <laughs> a lot of a lot of it. But um, I do remember I listened to, to like the Peasant Princess series, which what which he brought his wife, Grace, mm-hmm. on afterwards. And I remember her her one rebuke was kind of the tightest to, you know, women should be homeward oriented, you know, or whatnot. Um, but yeah, most of what he said kind of made me feel like you're the princess and whoever marries you is responsible and in charge of making sure even, I remember him talking about having like finding the home that his wife wanted and needed to do ministry or, you know, things like that. And so, I think, um, yeah, I think he just kind of made me feel like, yeah, whoever, whoever comes along should be this knight in shining armor who scoops you off your feet. And, you know, if, is that, is that answering your question? Yeah, no, totally is. And I mean, I think you said early, I don't think I was the audience of most preaching, right? I would say at our church now, you feel like a the sermons are equally for you, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you said it's not, it was not popular back then and probably still is it now, you know, I've heard more often than not uh, preachers criticizing the thought that you can't, you can't um, like single out women's sins or sins that women struggle with because you're a man as a pastor. But if God's word says that men should be pastors, then they should be able to call out sin in all of their, you know, all of their sheep. Um, and so, yeah, I think a lot of his was mostly, mostly targeting men and their sin. And, um, yeah, there were parts of it that were attractive to me too, as a young Christian. Right. And, um, like feeling like, yeah, uh, in my past relationships, I didn't feel cherished, you know, or, or whatever. And that, that that was something that was possible in marriage, that that was something that could happen, was really attractive, and and that a man should be my spiritual, helping me spiritually, like in life. And I think, yeah, I think some of those things are good. So I I agreed a lot with what Pastor Michael said about. Yeah, yeah, I think it's definitely again, right? Even Amy's comments you're hearing out of. Right, the dissatisfaction with the status quo, right, where where men aren't doing that, is where this was so refreshing. And two, I think this might be a a restless shirt for women if we ever sell T-shirts that women need pastors too, right? They just need pastors just as much as their husbands do. So, you've heard from uh, the clients over here. What do you guys all think about this clip? Yeah. Um... Immediately what comes to mind is the context of the time. Um, I mean, uh, right before coming on the podcast, I uh, looked up a song called In the Secret. Um, and it was a huge song uh, in evangelical churches. Classic. Oh, yes. man, that brings um, me back. <laughs> but it, it is a very emotional song that um, it's kind of ambiguous. Am I, am I talking to a girlfriend or? Oh, it totally is. It to. sounds it sounds just like uh, a love song that is written yes. uh, for a girl. Yeah. It's it is a little bit. It is strange. Like if yeah. you sing it now, you feel weird. 
Yeah. So, I mean, coming out of a very feminized culture um, and uh, at the time, I'm assuming still a pretty feminized culture in, in big Eva churches, um, I feel like Driscoll probably went onto an over direction um, much of the and much of the new Calvinist movement and said, OK, women are getting their fill um, in big Eva. Uh, that that that's that's what that's what that's being marketed to so in new calvinism let's appeal to the masculine and and we'll be the pastors for the men's for the man's men or, or men's men or whatever the the phrase is um so that that's kind of my general observation uh but i do appreciate the the perspective and uh, i would say true perspective of women need pastors too yeah i think that uh they're the very idea that you have a target audience and it is specific, like just men or young men or, you know, what have you, that shows you that what you are doing is uh, some kind of, of cultural endeavor. Uh, what you are doing is not gospel ministry. It is not uh, the ministry of the church, which is for, you know, all ages, uh, both genders. It is for, it is for people, you know, like it is, it is for sinners. Uh, and so uh, that, yeah, it's just a, a really problematic, problematic thing to have uh, a target audience at all. That's really the question I think, you know, is that, is it even legitimate to have this like, Hey, we're really uh, for these people now at the same time, uh, like, you know, he tapped into this, I think, and I think it did show signs of working. And the reason why some women were drawn to this too, um, whether it was, you know, obviously the clip we listened to, I think is very problematic. I do think there's a lot of problems with the way this was gone about. Um, but uh, nonetheless, it does, it does seem to me that like modernity has created passive men, right? We've talked on the podcast already about how like, this is how we felt that we were passive in our own lives. And, and I think that I can attest that, you know, most of the men around me growing up were in a similar place, but you think about uh, just the effects of industrialization and pornography and video games and consumerism and kind of the, you know, Hey, I'm going to sit, I'm going to sit and watch sports. That's like a, a major part of who I am and my identity and how all of these things like the, this has drastically changed what it means to be a man. And one of the things that it has done is it has pacified men by and large. Um, and uh, I do think that like he was kind of tapping into that desire to see that. What would have been nice is if it was, you know, maybe a more balanced biblical approach <laughs> uh, as well as just, you know, maybe a more encouraging approach, right? So like just the fatherlessness of, of generations of men at this point um, has left that need. And so you have those sharp critical words but also this idea that like, yeah, like women are, you know, in this place of some kind of purity and it's all about just changing this man. Um, that's actually caused a lot of men in these movements, uh, in new Calvinism, especially in, in complementarian circles that kind of push this kind of idea and motif. Uh, it's, it's pushed a lot of men uh, away from uh, this sort of idea at all, simply because they feel like they start shaping up their act. And then lo and behold, uh, women are still sinful. You know, like they don't respond how they, you know, were basically told that, you know, this princess is going to just fall into my arms if I just kind of, you know, clean myself up. And, and so it's all, it, it is all very distorted, uh, but you do understand why it became popular. 
I, I think the point you're coming back to in the last in these last two clips, Michael, is that the power of Driscoll's ministry is that it is working with the grain of reality. Right. Yeah. It is a, it is appealing to to certain things that are just true in human nature, in in men and women. And while perhaps there are, you know, there are issues, there are problems, right? These things are maybe in the wrong place at times. It's working with the grain, right? And that's why, because people are, we are in a, right? Elijah talked about the emergent church. We are in a truth-starved time. And so people keep, people get this whiff of reality, right? However close or off it is, and they want it. But also, by the way, sports fans, we love you. Love to have you on the show. Yeah. 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 Sorry to throw you all in there. I also threw in industrialization and I love a lot of things from industrialization. I just... All I'm pointing out is that masculinity today has drastically changed and how it, what it looks like or like how you, you know, uh, are a man. It, it has become uh, difficult in its own way, uh, in a way that it just wasn't in the past when, you know, the duties of a man were clear because there are things you just literally had to do. Uh, so that is all I was saying. Love you guys. Uh, go ahead. Watch the game. Dave, what do you think about this? Yeah, so... Um... Like you're saying, you know, in general, what he's saying is positive. One of the things that I think he can be faulted for is he paints a very specific version of what masculinity is. Masculinity is ABC. And, you know, I think there's a wider range for that. You know, for for instance, he really seems to indicate that uh, man is sole breadwinner, you know, like I was pointing out, you know, the, the, the woman is the princess, you know, the definite emphasis on, on women staying at home. And, and I'm, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. The thing that kind of makes me curious as to what was going on is um, at the same time, uh, Mars Hill is rising. Seattle is going through an absolute, uh, an absolute uh, boom in real estate and development. Like I went to Seattle on business in 99, 1999, and it was a dumpy kind of burned out downtown area. I went again in 2017 and it was night and day, like real estate mm. prices were shooting up. I mean, the, the place was just, I mean, the, the mm. prices of everything had to have just gone through the roof. Homelessness was, was even worse at that point. Um, now I, I got to wonder what about the guys who, who really put all their, you know, gave it their all, but they just weren't high powered lawyers or they weren't high powered this or that. And they were priced out of the Seattle market or they mm. couldn't really do what they wanted or you know, the economic realities kind of made it so that they couldn't live Driscoll's dream, you know, for those who could props to them. But what about those people that were kind of left behind, you know, like he says, run over by the bus, right. were they yeah. taken care of Were they preached to Were they pastored? Yeah. How much too, by the way, is like how much of what Driscoll was doing was this kind of like punching down from the pulpit where it was like, Hey, all you guys got to shape up, but look at me, you know, like, like, obviously I've got it together in some way. Um, he, he definitely makes it like this, you know, image of just like, look, I'm the real guy, you know, uh, but you guys are all uh, just little, little boys that can shave. You're, you're asking the question of, right. You, there is specific scriptural calls to men and women, right? Totally. No one here denies that. The question is to what level are you going to bind the conscience of, of your church? especially if it is, if it is right, if it requires a multi hundred thousand dollar a year income for one of you, right? If it is, or if as, 
as Michael has mentioned, if it is maybe explicitly, I am personally the model, <laughs> right? That's, that's a, that's a big thing. And anyone else, any thoughts on this before we go? Yeah. Go alive. Pardon me. Uh, wonders what he would say to someone like me. Uh, I, I know in the, I think it was this episode where he was talking to one of the musicians and pulled out money from his wallet and was like, okay, go buy your girlfriend a ring and settle down. Um, but I, I wonder what he would say to someone like me who is single, not, not like not dating right now, not necessarily even looking to date right now. Um, but doesn't necessarily have an income to, uh, you know, consider marriage, um, because I'm concerned about seminary and furthering my education for pastoral ministry. Now, if the Lord put someone in front of me, it's like, yeah, that, um, and it's clear that that's what's that I need to marry that person. I, gosh, I don't want to sound like the person that's like, the Lord told me to marry you. Um, but yeah, I, I just wonder what Driscoll would say some, to someone like me, because it doesn't sound like that I necessarily fit into his thought of masculinity because I'm not settling down and starting a large family right now. Pastor Mark, if you'd like to get in touch with Elijah, we <laughs> will get you his contact info um, for the for uh, poultry. At, let us record that conversation. Yeah, so, if you're a single, uh, single girl who listens to Restless, and you're listening to Elijah and think, "Man, this guy sounds cool." That was a good. <laughs> so, um, but I think you you've transitioned to the final clip we're going to play tonight. We might play a little bit longer one because in the last two episodes, I haven't played any of the like emotional pull at the heartstrings, like Driscoll as a good guy, Driscoll as a pastor, this ministry, like really reaching into people and helping them. And so I, I think we're going to, because like I said, one of the most, I mean, the, the gripping part of this podcast for me was the last, yeah, 10 minutes of people just talking about Driscoll in all these ways. And so I want to play, um, yeah, what was kind of, it was presented in the podcast as the crescendo. It's a little bit longer clip, so we might stop if I hear something that I think is notable even though if that uh we're we're here we're not here for the emotional impact but we'll uh we'll listen to it this is about um the church one day where they decided to have spontaneous baptism easter 2008 like the week of driscoll had a had a last minute idea which is like what if instead of doing baptisms afterwards we do them like in the moment this was actually a pretty big break in tradition for them Baptism usually involved a deeply engaged conversation with a pastor to ensure that an individual understood exactly what was happening and why. Mark, though, made the case to the other pastors that baptisms in the New Testament were pretty much spontaneous. So why not just open it up? Classic lead pastor, last minute. Uh, everybody's like, ah, scrambling. When the prince of life are ransom shed for us his precious blood. Man, I was nervous. I was going to be leading worship that day. I'm just like, geez, it's going to be so lame if nobody responds. But he was pretty confident some people would respond in good grief. It was a, it was a huge response. Brad House told me this story as well. He attended the church starting in 2000 and was on staff from 2005 to 2012. It was overwhelming. Like... We didn't have towels, we didn't have shirts, we didn't know, like, we had soaked the whole back of the stage. And we quickly realized, I mean, this is just the classic 
you don't think it through. Like they were just coming in their clothes, like whatever they were wearing. And quickly it was like, oh my goodness, what have we done? Uh, the, 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 the people that were helping to like give towels to everybody are just rushing in to cover, to cover people up. We sent people to the store immediately to buy like every pair of dark colored like t-shirts and cheap shorts that we could buy in a multiple multiple mile radius because uh, people just kept responding. So this lady who apparently had a lot of cats comes in the tank and she gets baptized and then I'm sitting in a tank covered in cat hair on the on the top of the water just like dunking the next person that came in, you know, and it was like, it was complete insanity. And it was, it was beautiful. There was no, there's no manipulation, no guile in the midst of that. It was. All right, I want to stop it there. Maybe we'll pick it up in a second. So one, uh, that brief promo for doing baptisms by pouring. So way to go, uh, reformed uh, brethren there. But this, when I was listening to this, again, I found this, incredibly heart string tugging but the thing that clicked in my mind is the moment i heard someone say there was no manipulation there was no guile there and that contrasted with and driscoll was confident people would respond so uh what do you guys what do you guys think about kind of how this ends and we'll see if we if we think we should play the last two minutes of it but what do you guys think about this this overwhelming sense of of God just bringing people out of nowhere, right? That this is like, this is what made, as a guy will say, if we get to it in a minute, this is what made getting yelled at worth it, seeing this. Were you saying that they they do baptism via pouring? No, no, I was saying that the oh, cat okay. lady story right, is, right, a great, right, right, right. is a great advertisement for maybe why you should yes. consider. <laughs> okay, yes, I just, okay, gotcha. No, they do, oh, they did, man. they did the full immersion. immersion. Yeah, like, yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah, Matt, you're just being kind of uh, a mean, mean fundamentalist, uh, old school Presbyterian. I, I, I had to wanting to us twice. to stop to and twice to get there. So I have a heart. I have a heart in there. So it did. When I listened to this, even the second time, I started to tear up. So let me say, I feel like there are two things that I like can hold at the same time. Number one, it is moving. Like it's it's. Uh, powerful thing i'm sure that god was at work in in some way through it um if i was there i'm sure that i would have been very encouraged in various ways even just hearing it now i feel encouraged in some ways uh then the other side that i believe i can hold while also saying that is that the very nature of spontaneous just come right up kind of baptism is in itself um i think uh dangerous and it it's not that it's not necessarily to say that it's it's intended as emotionally manipulative, but if you are in an audience and you've got lights going and you've got a band playing music and and just the nature of of you know this kind of music, and you all of a sudden see a bunch of people going up to go and experience this thing called baptism, and it's been urged on you as a really important thing to do, uh, that in itself will like be uh, a lot more pressure to go and do this. And so, I mean, I have, uh, you know, you think about uh, how often the early church would do uh, things with proselytes and, you know, it would take 
uh, quite a long time. Uh, they wouldn't even be allowed to see the Lord's Supper. And then, uh, you know, it was only uh, after, you know, usually at least a year, if not more of discipleship that they would be allowed to be baptized and then admitted to the supper. And uh, I don't know that that's necessarily the, the best option, but uh, taking time, making sure somebody realizes what exactly they're doing. If they've not been baptized, um, you know, this, it's, uh, it's an opportunity to help somebody count the cost uh, before actually uh, taking that sign upon themselves to just rush into it. Uh, it, it seems problematic to me, but I, I hold both of those things at the same time. Maybe I'm not supposed to, maybe you can tell me that's uh, contradictory, but, but, uh, I'm holding them both right now and feeling just fine about it. I was at a uh, Chipotle when I was listening to this episode there, I was frying tortilla chips and the last part of this episode came on and I'm like trying to hold back tears. So I'm not <laughs> tortilla chips. Um, yeah. You're like, it's just a fryer. It's not yeah, it's just... <laughs> the person's cutting onions next to yeah. you. Um, oh, goodness. Um, yeah, I'm not convinced that there wasn't any sort of emotional manipulation. Um, I, I'm not convinced that there wasn't some sort of droning piano going on or something like that. Um, a little bit of a shot taken right there. Um, but yeah, um, immediately what comes to mind is uh, a writing from the patristic father, patristic fathers, um, uh, the Didache, where it talks about um, catechizing new converts uh, before baptism, um, and you know, I, I don't, I don't know if I would necessarily go as far as that, but I see the value in that. Um, when you're going about a spontaneous baptism. Um, there isn't much time to see the testing of someone's faith or anything like that. Um, now, I, I know this goes into the whole theological thought of what is baptism? Is it a means of grace or um, is it purely just a proclamation or anything like that? Um, but there, there is risk. There's inherent risk that goes on when you allow for a spontaneous baptism. Um, and, and then also there's, with every person that you see baptized, you're seeing there's something exciting going on and you may not understand what, what that act of baptism is. And here I am, first time visitor at a church. Hey, this seems exciting. I don't know what it is. Let, let's go get baptized. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there, my, my, my mind's stirring around all of this. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, there's going to be when people start going out, there's going to be some sort of pressure to join in or to be part of the crowd or to do the thing that everybody else is doing. You know, since, since at Marceau, they like, um, they like talking about film. Let's talk about the, the best film about Baptists ever made footloose. Um, just kidding. That's right. <laughs> but at, at the end, at the end, you know, they got you know, they, the dance and everybody's standing around the music is playing and nobody's dancing because nobody knows what to do. And of course, in walks Kevin Bacon and his date and they dance and then boom, everybody just piles into the dance. How much of that is going on here? You know, as long as some, as long as one person goes up, then people are going to, okay, let's, let's join in. This is happening. Let's do the thing. I wonder how much of that's going on here. Yeah. This is why, uh, you know, people like Stephen Furtick, uh, who, you know, I don't know if we'll ever talk about this guy on the restless podcast, no. but uh, he's, <laughs> well, we are now, 
uh, just yeah. for a second. But guys like him will literally plant fake people to go up and be baptized who have already been baptized. They're just like they're just literally staged because they know that if you get some people walking forward, you'll be able to get more come to come, uh, and, you know, and follow. And so it's just uh, it, it just leaves a possibility. I've talked about this before. And, you know, I think that uh, uh, we've had some discussions with people. I don't know if it was on the podcast or off the podcast, because I, I think what I'm saying often is misunderstood in this regard. But I think that a lot of the way that we do church, a lot of the way that we speak to each other, a lot of the way that we try to, you know, get each other to do certain things is inherently manipulative. Uh, but the, we're just so used to it. It's just so normative for us that we just don't think of it that way. Uh, but I think that there is kind of an inherent emotional manipulation going on in a lot of these events. Now, was that exactly happening here? I don't know. And I think, right, the reason it's, it's often that can be misunderstood is that such loaded language, like that there's right, that this band who's playing through all these baptism has some weird ulterior motive. You, you're just saying, no, right. that the environment is such that it's going to cause a certain kind of an emotional response, right? Right. And, and we're not going to play the clip. We're going we're gonna to get out of here. This has been so great. But, right, the, the, the band leader's 10-year-old daughter goes forward. And this is obviously the, the emotional thing because, right, where there are, there are two things. I mean, there are a couple things you're left with, but Obviously, for a parent, and if you're a reformed parent, if you believe your children are heirs to the promise, the children's any exercise of their faith is just is just joy to you to get to see that. Now, obviously, this can go alongside catechism, teaching them what that means, right? So that it is a it is a considered re- response to them. But I think you just see with this with with these kinds of uses of the ordinances led by Driscoll, right? The things he did in pastoral ministry. I just think you see the power of, of pastors stepping in as church fathers in the lives of people. And I think that is, that's this, that's what he's, that's what was, I think if I were to say what positive thing holds this episode together is that from beginning to end, Driscoll is exercising kind of a fatherly authority, right? He's kind of, you know, he's, he's giving, he's beating you up a little bit. He's right. Pulling you in, right. He's acting like your dad. He's buying your ring for a girl, right. He's doing these things. And so if I were to say the positive thing that that's what held it together, that, that would be where I would leave it. And I do think, as I mentioned, we're under pastor. Women need pastors too. We need pastors. If you have made it all the way to the end of this show, thank you for listening to this super stuffed episode of restless. There is no guile. There is no manipulation here at the end of the show. We are so glad you listened. We are getting excited for the one year of Restless. We will catch you later.